please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the reasons that I so thoroughly love reading the Bible is because of the great stories that are found in the Old Testament. Now, having grown up in the church, many of these stories I have heard over and over and over again. And yet, one of the most wonderful things about these stories is that every time I read them or reread them, it seems as though I find something new. I notice something in a way that I've never noticed before. A new question or a new thought is raised. And today's story of the golden calf is no exception. Now let's set the stage. Moses had been leading the Israelites through the wilderness for years, and decades in fact. And finally they were getting close to the end. They were getting closer to this promised land that God had promised. But God decides to call Moses to the mountaintop. It's time for a little one-on-one, Moses and God. And so Moses went up. And God proceeded to tell Moses about all the details of the tabernacle that they were to build. The architectural plans, the laws, the the instructions, details, details, details. In fact, if you read the six chapters prior to today's reading in chapter 32, it's just full of all of these details. And they can get a little monotonous. Maybe that's why God decided to just have Moses come and hear them instead of all the people. But meanwhile... All of Moses' people, all those Israelites, were waiting down in the valley. They were waiting for Moses, and they didn't really know, in fact, where Moses had gone, where he, what he was doing, or if he, in fact, would come back. He had been gone far too long, in their opinion. They were getting impatient. Where was this guy, this guy who's supposedly our leader, who brought us this far for decades, and now he just ups and leaves and abandons us? Is he ever coming back? Or maybe, just maybe, Moses got swallowed up. It had been 40 days with nothing, no sign from Moses, no communication, nothing. Had he been, as some of them had expected him to be, devoured by a fiery divine presence? You see, people didn't realize that Moses was with God, receiving instructions. Who knows where he could have gone? But they did fear that something had happened to Moses, this man who led them out of Egypt. And the people felt incredibly vulnerable, and they began to say that he had, in fact, disappeared. Now, it's easy for all of us to judge the Israelites harshly here. To say, come on, people. Can't you be patient? Forty days. Is that so long to wait? I mean, what's another few days? But ask anyone who has waited. Who has waited for medical test results to come back who has waited for the graded results of a huge exam that they took at school, who has waited for that phone call after the first date, or who has waited for the call back 
from that first interview of your dream job. Being patient isn't always easy. And goodness knows the Israelites had been waiting long enough already. So in their impatience, in their ambiguity, in their lack of knowledge of what was going on, they went to Aaron, the next likely leader, Moses' brother, Moses' spokesman, and they said, Aaron, we want a god. Now Aaron was probably flattered when the people came to him and asked him to be their leader. He finally saw an opportunity, perhaps, to seize power from his brother. The people were rejecting Moses' leadership for false gods. And I'm not sure that they really wanted Aaron to take Moses' place, but they wanted a god. Because they had realized the importance of having a god as they wandered through the wilderness for so long. And the reality was that they wanted a god over whom they had control. And they saw Aaron as one who could help them accomplish this rebellion. And despite all of the miracles that God had done for these people over the years, the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, it seems as though it was inappropriate for them to give up on God just because they couldn't find Moses. After all, God had done so many miracles for them. How quickly we judge others, especially when we know the end result. We're fortunate. We know how this chapter ends. We know how this book ends. We know how this whole Bible ends. And so it's pretty easy to say to the Israelites, why are you so impatient? Just hang in there. But I began to wonder, when have I given up on God when I should have been more patient? When have you given up on God merely because you wondered if God would ever respond at all? When did we give up on God because we wondered if God even heard us? Have you ever given up on God because despite all the many things that God has done in your life, deep inside you wondered if God really existed? Is it so difficult after all to imagine why the Israelites might have given up on Moses, why they might have given up on God. Perhaps if we look in the mirror, we can understand it better. How quickly do we look for our own ways to bring false gods to save ourselves? How often do we, instead of putting all of our faith in God, justify our actions that never really allow God to do the work that God is intending to do? So Aaron ordered all of them to bring their gold, their earrings, their bracelets, their chains, whatever they could find, gold lying around their tents. I'm not sure why they had so much gold lying around, but they did. And he told them, bring their gold to me and I'm going to make something. And so he brought all the gold and he formed it into a golden calf, a god, a god that they could see, a god that they could touch, a god that they would worship. And the party began, and the festivities began around this calf, and they were having fun, celebrating, eating, feasting, worshiping. And meanwhile, God and Moses were up on the mountaintop talking. 
And then God heard the commotion. God saw the commotion and said to Moses, Do you see what your people are doing down there? I can't imagine how angry God must have been. And in fact, rightly so. God had had it with these people and decided, okay, this is it. This is the last straw. I'm going to leave them. I'm going to leave them once and for all. But Moses, Moses has been faithful to me. I'm going to save Moses and create a nation out of Moses. Yeah. Off with those people. On with Moses. But Moses quickly interceded. And Moses begged. Moses reminded God of God's earlier promises, early stories of God's people. And then Moses, in fact, appealed to God's own sense of pride and honor. Moses said, you've gone to an awfully lot of trouble to get them this far, God. Wouldn't that be wasted if you gave up on them all now? What would the Egyptians think? Wouldn't you look like a fool to have saved these people only to lose them, to banish them? To get rid of them so quickly? Pharaoh enslaved them. Will you, the Lord, slay them? There's nothing that Moses could have said to justify the actions of the Israelites before God. The act that the Israelites had done was a deliberate act. And they weren't even, in fact, acknowledging it as any wrongdoing. They weren't asking for a uh, forgiveness. They weren't admitting that they had done anything wrong, even though they had promised just six chapters earlier, or eight chapters earlier in Exodus 24, uh, verse 7, their exact words, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Only eight chapters later, the golden calf arrives. Moses was arguing with God, but you see, Moses' argument had little to do with the facts of what was going on here because these people had no reason to get forgiveness from God. And so Moses took a new approach. Moses appealed to God's own character, not the actions of the Israelites. Moses said, but God, you made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel. Surely you will keep this promise. He's kind of pulling at God's heartstrings. Even though the Israelites didn't hold up their end of the promise, could you make sure you hold up your end of the promise? So the shock of this story is not that God wanted to destroy these unfaithful people, but the shock of the story is that Moses was able to convince God to not destroy these people. Moses is actually able to stand in the middle and deter God's wrath. Even when the Lord says, leave me alone. That is precisely what Moses does not do. Now, wait a minute. God's mind was changed. Now, how can that be? I thought we had an all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful Strong, omniscient, determined, confident God. How on earth would Moses change God's mind? And in reality, the arguments that Moses was offering God weren't really even all that strong. 
for God to say, you know what, Moses, you're right. You're right. I was wrong. No. The Israelites had no excuses. What they had done was clearly wrong, and they had broken the covenant between God and God's people. Is this the kind of God I want to believe in? A God that's a pushover with no backbone, wishy-washy, no authority? This week, as I prayed, I was reminded of this text every single time that I prayed. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I thought of this question a lot, and I wondered, what kind of God am I praying to? The theology offered in this text is not the theology that we often think about or hear about. Because in many ways, the theology that I was taught was that God is solid, is predictable, and unmovable. I mean, doesn't it say this in the Bible? And so, in the middle of my prayers, I decided to go searching in the text to find words. Because sometimes we have theology that is not backed up necessarily by scripture. And there was only one place in the Bible, only one place that says that God doesn't change. And that is in 1 Samuel 15, 29. And it's discussions about God's deep regret in choosing Saul as king. But interestingly enough, in that same passage, God talks about how regretful God was about this decision and maybe should change his mind. So when we read other stories in the Old Testament, we see again and again, in fact, how God changed God's mind. And almost every time that God's mind was changed, it was because God had chosen to offer mercy instead of destruction and death for God's people. No wonder Moses' argument to God was not overly logical. There is no logic in this kind of argument. So Moses had to rely on the character of a merciful God, a God that offers mercy and grace when we least deserve it. Nagel and Greaves, in their studies on Exodus, said, quote, that the Old Testament God occasionally has a change of mind will be a surprise to some readers. It said God really does respond to us, that we really do make a difference with God. It seems at first to be a problem with traditional Christian theology that has emphasized that God is unchangeable, immovable. But actually, such an emphasis also implies unfeeling. And this is more the God of Greek philosophy, which strongly influenced the development of Christian theology more than that, more than the God that we actually see in Scripture. The fact that the text shows God changing away from judgment in favor of mercy makes God's changeability great news. It's an important insight into God's own character. And so this week I prayed. And as I prayed, I actually found new power in my prayers as a result of this text, I realized that all along I have wanted a God like this to pray to, a God that will listen to my pleas, a God that will listen to my crazy ideas, a God that will listen to my prayers, even if they don't make 
a lot of sense, even if they're not logical. Of course, I hope my prayers would influence God. Isn't that one of the reasons I pray? And if we as humans were created in God's image and we are given free will and the opportunity to change our mind and to choose, doesn't it make sense that God too would also have the opportunity to choose? But the story doesn't just tell us that if we passionately plead to God for anything, it will happen. We all know painfully that this isn't the case. I presume that all of us at one point or another have prayed and pleaded with God and what we had hoped for didn't happen. And so what do you do with that? And the answer is, I don't know. That's where I can't offer answers. But I can offer the hope that God does indeed listen to our prayers. And our prayers are important, and they do make a difference. And that's what we can learn from this text, that through our prayers, both our prayers of supplication as well as our prayers of thanksgiving and proclamation, we are building a relationship with God. And that is what God desires most of all. In our Exodus story today, it wasn't just anyone who convinced God. It was Moses, someone who had already built a very solid relationship with God, and the trust between them was mutual, even though Moses, as we know, had made many, many mistakes before God. And while I most definitely believe that God listens to all of our prayers, I do think that we need to continually work at building a solid relationship with God, not only so that God will hear our prayers, but so that we will hear God's words to us. Such a relationship like the one between Moses and God is only spent through many prayers, significant time together, and profound expressions of God's grace. Psalm 106 that Steve read reminds us of Moses' amazing role in this whole story too. It's actually very refreshing to see examples of when the people God chooses really step up to the plate. How easy it would have been for Moses to say to God when God wanted to destroy all the Israelite people and say, yes, God, I totally agree with you. Let's wash our hands of them and your plan to make a great nation out of myself and my children has a touch of divine brilliance. I like it, God. Go for it. But he didn't. He didn't do that. Instead, Moses stood in the breach, and he very bravely, courageously argued with God. But beyond the fact that Moses was able to change God's mind was that God let God's own self be persuaded. A number of years ago, I was visiting my sister and her family, and I went into my niece's bedroom she was in about fifth or sixth grade at the time. Now, my niece isn't overly athletic, although she can participate in sports, but nothing compared to her brothers who live and die by sports. And so I was very surprised when I looked in Kayla's room and saw that she had quite a large athletic trophy sitting on her dresser. And I said, Kayla, is that your trophy over there? And she said, yeah. I got it for playing soccer when we lived in Virginia a few years ago. 
I said, oh, did your team win the championship? I mean, did you, were you the conference champions? And she said, no. I said, well, you must have had a pretty good team if you got a trophy. She said, actually, not really. In fact, our team didn't win any games. And I said, you mean you got a trophy and your team didn't win any games? She goes, yeah, everybody on the team got a trophy. And I said, does everybody in the league get a trophy? No, just our team. And I said, why on earth did you get a... And this was a big trophy. I said, why did you get a trophy? And she goes, you know, I don't really know. At our conference, at our banquet, um, at the end of the season, the coach was up there talking and telling about the season and stuff. And then all of a sudden, he pulled out this table and lifted the sheet, and there were trophies, a trophy for every single person on the team with their name engraved on it. And he distributed them to all of us, and we got a trophy for playing on a never-winning team. The trophy was undeserved. Kayla and I laughed about how odd it was to get a trophy for not winning any games. There's no reason for a trophy when your team lost every single one of the games. In fact, if I remember correctly, I think she told me her team never even scored one goal. <laughs> but the coach, the coach took his own money and he wanted his players to feel loved his second and third graders who were on that team. He wanted them to feel appreciated. He wanted them to feel as though they had something to be proud of. And so Kayla puts her trophy out proudly. Both stories, the trophy story and the Exodus story, demonstrate grace profoundly. The Israelites knew nothing of what was going on between Moses and God up on the mountaintop. They didn't know about the struggle, the debate, the argument, or even the verdict. At the very moment that God was relenting, they were participating in a huge party around the golden calf. They weren't getting their due. They don't deserve a trophy, let alone forgiveness from a God to whom they aren't even sorry. They are saved even before they know that they had been indicted and condemned. Because of this story, we know that forgiveness and intercessory prayer are possible. It reminds us of the many times, in fact, 19 times in the Bible, when God does respond to people's prayers for mercy, when God could have easily chosen the other path and probably should have chosen the other path, when judgment was only appropriate and instead, mercy flowed from God, and God's mind was changed. So do we have a God who is changeable, who vacillates? Yes. And I'm glad. But what is not changeable about God is God's intention to save and show mercy. The God of Scripture is one in whom mercy triumphs over justice. And as I prayed this week, my prayers changed. My prayers were full of gratitude as I prayed to God who listens to my prayers, who loves me more than I deserve, and who offers me grace and mercy abundantly, far more than I could ever ask or imagine.
Amen.